0: contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Hello and welcome to the Afternoon Light podcast. And today I'm joined by Sybil Nolan and Sybil is a senior lecturer in publishing and communications at the University of Melbourne, where she also did her PhD in history and her research areas are in publishing, print culture and Australian political and media history. Welcome to Afternoon Light, Sybil.
1: Thank you. Nice to be here.
0: It's great to have you on and to talk about uh, the Menzies collection. And you are one of the few people who has sat and used it in in great detail for your research. Can you tell me about the Menzies collection here at Melbourne University? Mm. It's
1: a fascinating collection. I, I first used it during my PhD, which is actually a really quite a long time ago now, so it probably was you know, maybe around 2005 or something, I first accessed it and there was this just amazing, I asked for the catalogue, such as it was, and this grey plastic ring binder appeared uh, with the Volkswagen icon on the front, uh, which I've since realised is actually because there would have been, um, I I suspect that was from when Menzies might have had some involvement with the, the Volkswagen Literary Awards. One by 80, hope, and various other luminaries. But anyway, here was this strange folder uh, with a very, you know, approximate-typed list inside of all the contents of the collection, which had uh, more than 4,000 items in it, um, not only books but periodicals, photos, uh, journals, you know, and there was also some double-ups. You know, there's quite a lot of uh, duplication in the collection. But I looked through this this spring binder and I, I had to laugh because miscellaneous was by far the largest category. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, whoa, this is going to be, how do I do this for my PhD? So I, I did use it in my PhD, but I just really dipped into it at that point and I, I wanted to come back afterwards. And so in 2013, the Faculty of Arts gave me a grant to go back in and, and embark on a more focused project, which was on Robert Menzies' library, Robert Menzies' world, and I was starting to try and make sense of it as a world. And then it was still very challenging because it's the collection, as I think it still is, was in the Lee Scott room.
0: It is, yeah. You
1: couldn't easily, you know, the librarians kindly showed me to the room, but then you couldn't really stay for any period of time and go around pulling books out of um, the locked glass cabinets. For obvious reasons that they, you know, they were downstairs in the reading room, but they were, they couldn't sit in there with you by yourself, obviously, while you did all this work. So you had to do using the catalog such as it was and the sort of visits to the room to look at the physical formations and also using what by then had been created by Caitlin Stone and Jim Berryman, which was a database called, uh, the living library. The living library. Yes. Sorry, yes, I knew it had an unusual name. Um, and that once again is not, it's not a full catalog, but no. it does at least list books by authors and by title, and you can sort of ser- That's a searchable database. So, using all those things, I was able to start to get more of a sense of the formations of the library, if you like, and to think about how I could work with them.
0: It's interesting this this catalog you talk about, which is not. As we would understand a university library catalogue to to be, it's um, basically a list that was typed up by his his long long standing secretary mm. Hazel Craig, wasn't it? Mm. And uh, and it's not comprehensive either. There are mm. items that are that are on the list that aren't in the collection, or, or vice versa. But the the way the library has been arranged in the Lee Scott Room is pretty much true to the way it was arranged in Sir Robert's. The home he lived mm-hmm. in his retirement, um, in Haverbrack Avenue in Malvern and also his prime post prime ministerial office on Collins Street in, in Melbourne. So you can actually get a sense of how he had arranged his, his books, whether that's a reflection mm-hmm. of his thinking or the, the categories. Obviously, as you say, miscellaneous was quite, quite the category. <laughs> um, but, uh, but you know, the categories that he thought were important to group together, which is really interesting. Mm. And also some were from his
1: bedroom. Yes. So that would be a fascinating study to go back and look at the books that he had at his bedside, you know, presumably when he died. They would have been nearby in his bedroom. Uh, But that, that was a very sort of tempting way to go, yes. but I was actually trying to embark on a larger project, so I put that to one side. But someone else would be a great project for a PhD student. Yeah, what,
0: what's on people's bedside tables mm-hmm. when they die? And he, <laughs> loved,
1: you know how he loved um, detective fiction? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, he'd launched Joan Lindsay's book, Uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock, just shortly, you know, shortly after he retired. You know, he was very connected to his books and um, so it would be very interesting to see what was on his bedside table.
0: Yes, indeed. Well, if... I mean, I think many of us who are readers will have bedside tables laden with books that are in the, <laughs> to get to at some stage to yeah. read while, <laughs> whether you do or not is another question. Sybil, this, this collection, which, um, Sir Robert gave to the university on his death in 1978, which is, you know, an amazing treasure trove of, of books from Australia's longest serving prime minister. How do you think it, can best be used? That's a really good question. I mean, I think it is
1: um, It is a, a tool for researchers. and But, you know, I, I am biased, of course, because I'm an historical researcher. But I think if you look at the very interesting use that Judith Brett's made of it, if you look at the approach I've made in this chapter that we're talking about today about Nehru's uh, The Discovery of India, you know, there, it, it definitely rewards the researcher in ways that, you know, when I go to the National Library and I read Menzies' correspondence there, it's a different sort of reward yeah, and it's complementary usually to what's going on in the um, actual correspondence. And for that reason, I do think that it's got a real value for researchers. I'm thinking back also to the Treasures exhibitions that have been on the National, at the National Library, just sensational, absolutely sensational exhibitions. And that there's no reason why, you know, the Macaulay, for instance, would be an interesting book to be in a Treasures exhibition. I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, that um, Menzies read Macaulay as a youth and, and and that that's the copy he had in his youth or anything. He, it's obviously a collectible copy that he, I think it's in two volumes from memory that he had um, from later on. But there's still interesting books for the public to see, um, also the one that Judith Brett refers to about the book by Burke mm. that's got um the bus ticket or the – no, it's got a torn-out thing from a n- newspaper, I think, in it that shows the date yes. that he was using as a bookmark. I thought – I myself found that really instructive when I looked at that in the library. So that sort of thing, I think you can put it on display, you know, single items could be lent out or whatever. But I think as a whole it really – needs to be kept together in one place and i think digitization is another option that would be great too
0: and and, as you were saying it's complement the collection is complementary to for example the papers that are held by the national library Mm. or in the archives so there are books with significant inscriptions from significant people in Mm. them, and you can look to the correspondence Menzies might have had with, say, JFK or Nehru, as we're going to talk about, or or Winston Churchill or, you know, political leaders in Australia, of course, Curtin Chifley, Harold Holt, and get a bigger, a a sort of more complete picture of that relationship. I had on the podcast um, earlier Martin Lyons from the University of New South Mm -hmm. Wales who's written a book on... The letters that were written to Robert Menzies from 1949 mm. to 66. That kind of history from below is yeah. another, you know, is another angle, but all part of giving a, a more complete picture than what you would just get from reading official documents in the archives. <laughs> yeah. When you um, talk about the importance of the of the collection staying together. And, and that was, that was Menzies' wish too. Mm. He, he wanted, um, he wanted to give this entire collection to the University of Melbourne, you know, the university that he had studied in, that he had a real passion for. Of course, higher ed, he'd had a passion for, but then of course ended his career as Chancellor of the University in the, the late sixties, early seventies. What does it say about Menzies? Do you think that he wanted it to be preserved in its totality? Does it, does it give you a, an idea about the type of person he is i know you write about this sort of he has a self image
1: yeah <laughs> um, you can see in his collection look i think he really really loved books he knew he his whole prospects were formed out of study really mm. Mm. um i think his family in japan were even poorer than has been understood um until recently at that point in their lives they were very poor yes and the Japarat leader has glowing references to Master Robert Menzies doing well in like grade six, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and already the poor man is <laughs> set on this, this, you know, long trajectory, trajectory <laughs> of study. Yeah. But he loved, he loved books. He really loved books. They helped him become what he became. They were a very important part of his identity. And, you know, the fact he had the Lionel Lindsay Plate in the front that showed his achievements as a barrister and as a politician, as a parliamentarian, as a leader. You know, I think that, that also was an affirmation of how important the library was to him. So it's interesting. I was thinking about this this morning when I was on my way in. It's interesting that that Lionel Lindsay, who was a friend of his, grew up near, not too far from him at Creswick. Lionel Lindsay obviously didn't create that until after 1939 because mm. it has the Declaration of War that yes. Menzies read in yeah. it. So in thinking, starting to think about when did he actually – he was collecting books from his 20s. Yes. But at the start it's a very small collection. When you look back to the his childhood, there's a few books from childhood that were school prizes mainly, his adolescence, and then from the start of the 20s his brother Frank who – was, he was very close to went, went into the AIF and bought him some books while he was in London and sent them back. So he starts to build a collection gradually. But it's a really interesting question about when did he start to think about it as a library? And personally, I don't really have a clear answer except to say it's after 1939. And he's obviously then very, in a very cleverly worked out that if this Often people give book collections to libraries and they're disseminated through the collection. Yes. yeah. And ultimately they get, you know, damaged by use by students and and staff and other researchers and they have to be disposed of and then they disappear from the catalogue. So he was determined that his collection should stay together. He didn't want it disseminated through the collection. So that, I don't. That's a long answer, but I don't mm. know if I've actually answered your question. No, but I no, think,
0: but it's 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 interesting that he saw the utility in his collection mm. for the university, and I, I think he hoped that it would be used as a reference library. He did yeah, which given the books themselves mm. are not rare, it's the ownership of the books. And how they had been received or mm. collected—that that is of interest um, mainly. And of course, where there's annotations or insertions, inclusions, mm. that's of interest. But um, yes, it's it's interesting that it has been, and 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 great for us that it has been kept in mm. the Lee Scott room in its completeness. A, a key theme that you have explored in your research, Sybil, and that comes out in the collection is is empire mm. and. Um, Menzies was quite clearly an Anglophile, looked fondly back on the British Empire, was was um, saddened by its demise and um, was never a an enormous fan of the Commonwealth. I think he would have preferred the Empire to have to have stayed in existence, but but he he was definitely a big character and figure in the Commonwealth and and wanted it to to be um, an informal meeting uh, of Commonwealth leaders to to gather together in the sort of family of nations that were part of the British Empire. How is British imperialism and the Commonwealth evoked in in the collection? How do you see those themes coming out?
1: Yes, well, as you say, um, Queen Victoria was still alive. The empire was still going strong when Menzies was born in 1894. And so he is a Victorian and he's a child of empire. The empire is so normalized, even in everyday newspaper accounts Mm. of Australian life. You know, so in the Australian press, empire is just there all the time. His major problem with the Commonwealth later on was really started when India became a republic Mm. within the Commonwealth. Mm. He thought the whole purpose of the Commonwealth was, you know, the relationship To the centre of empire and to the crown, yeah, and to uh, British democracy, and so that was where his problems really began with the Commonwealth. I think, Mm,
0: mm. and in um, in in some of the books in the collection, uh, there is a sense that British imperialism. Was a force for liberalism, which of course Menzies was a, a huge proponent of, um, and, and then, mm. of course, in in the mid forties, went on to create the the Liberal Party of Australia. How was liberalism, as it was seen through the the British Empire, depicted in in the collection? There's books where it is talked about as it being quite a the empire is a liberating force in these in these colonies. Mm. Well, I think
1: look really you just. The best way to think about this in simple terms, I think, is to just think about um, uh, British liberalism and how it's so imbricated with economic liberalism. So it's, it's you know, by its very nature, it's about freedom and the freedom is economic freedom as well as political freedom. They are totally entwined. It's, you know... Um, you know, you can see it in the, it's Dutch, you know, uh, cousin too, you know, trade and the right to think what you wanted to think and speak out were all entwined together. So I think that's why in the creation of the British Empire, you keep seeing this uh, narrative trajectory of freedom traveling Mm. with the development of empire. They go, To its proponents, you know, freedom and opportunity are seen to go hand in hand with the development of the empire. Now, obviously, if you're a person in a colonised nation, you may not actually see it the same way.
0: No, no. So which brings us, of course, to India. And um, one of the, the real traits in the collection is a book that was given to Menzies by... Indian Prime Minister Nehru uh, in 19, I think it was he gave it to him in 1949, was that right? Or 1950. Like 1950, when yeah. Menzies was visiting India. Mm. And it's Nehru's own book, The Discovery of India. There's a there's a, a pleasant inscription in it to Robert Gordon Menzies with many warm regards <laughs> and good wishes. Jawaharlal Nehru, New Delhi, there you go, December 27, 1950, so um, just after Menzies' birthday. Tell me about, about why this book is important in the collection and, and, and you know, what it, what it says about Menzies and his relations with, with Nehru. Yeah. Um,
1: well, I think it's worth noting that early in that year India, which had been independent since 1947, yeah. uh, became a republic within the Commonwealth. So that had happened early in the year. So Menzies is visiting. January in, 26, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, so Menzies was visiting after that event. And it was probably, in that sense, unfortunate, I think, that that important visit by Menzies happened at that point. Mm. They were all on their way to the Commonwealth Conference, if I remember correctly, in Britain after that. I think it, the visit, if it had happened earlier, probably it would have been you know, uh, more propitious. But um, unfortunately, we do know that um, that we do know for a fact that it appears that Menzies did look at the book because it has a penciled date uh, inside at 28th of the 12th, which suggests a book historian would say, I'm not an expert book historian, but based on my understanding of book history, a book historian would say that probably means it was begun to be read on the 28th of December um, that year. Um, unfortunately, you only have to look f- five pages into the book to actually find where the uncut sections start, meaning that you yeah. can't actually open the pages because they, they've never been cut. So yeah. you, you can read the back and the front of a four, four page section, but you can't read what happened in the middle. <laughs> and, um, that the part where that, that starts to happen is where some, pretty strong criticism of the British Empire and the way the British have behaved towards the Indian National Congress, um, of which, um, uh, Nehru was leader um, starts to kick in so yep. <laughs> it, it's it's um, tantalising to sit there thinking about did Menzies actually you know at that stage heave the book across the room <laughs> <laughs> and go I'm not going Is there any
0: evidence of dents
1: <laughs>
0: who, um, No, the <laughs> covers, with the
1: wall? The, the cover's <laughs> slightly tattered but um, that's all he, uh, we don't know when. that's probably just normal wear and tear because the you know the edition was from 1946 it's a nice mm. edition it's mm. actually a nice addition to handle. The paper's high quality. It was published in New York um by John Day and um and it had a, a really, you know, quite an elegant cover and, and it's very nicely typeset. So it's nice to handle it. But um it is in not great condition anymore. But, you know, we can tell that Menzies he hasn't, for example, when Menzies is interested in a book and what it has to say, he'll often make just a single pencil mark in the margin. And, um, you know, this is not a book. You can see that it doesn't look like he's handled it extensively. There's no useful, you know, footy tickets in there or <laughs> <laughs> bus tickets. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I think it's probably safe to assume that he, basically what he's done is that he's taken this book as, as, um, you know, this is, this is sort of, the the entree card, if you like, for um powerful men. Mm. They tend to send each other their books that they've written. Yes. Uh, to introduce themselves. And it becomes significant within this collection actually what other books that are gift books like this yes. are in the cl- well, Harry collection. Harry Truman
0: has given his biography autobiography yeah. to Menzies. I think Two copies, um, two different autobiographies he'd written or memoirs. So, yes, yeah, same, same type yeah. of methodology. And yeah.
1: that's important because it sort of tells you about the circuits. Yes. About the imperial or um, international circuits within which, you know, Menzies uh, was sort of um, communicating mm. and discussing ideas. Um, or in this case, it tells you actually probably there wasn't really much of a circuit going on here. Um probably he's it's an important he's you know, Nehru was an incredibly important figure by this time and also the book is regarded as a monumental memoir, if you like. Yes. Um yeah. it's it's a book that's reputation has lasted. It's what they call a charismatic book mm. uh that actually has changed you know help change the course of history mm. by just by its existence and the way it told the story it really is um, Nehru's account of why India was so significant and how he as a younger man had made sense of the complexities of India and what he thought needed to happen mm. to help India become a modern secular nation
0: because Nehru himself, and, and he and Menzies actually lead their, their countries for almost exactly the same mm. period of time. as for, Nehru dies in Died. 64 yeah. in office yeah. and, and Menzies, of course, retires in 66 and they both start in 49, I think. So it is, it's quite extraordinary. The, um, 47. 47. Yeah. Um, for, for, around uh, Nehru. Yeah, yeah, sorry, for mm. the, um, independence of India. But you know, it's quite extraordinary that they, their periods of leadership are almost, identical and so they're experiencing the world obviously from very different perspectives Nehru one of the leaders and founders of the non-aligned movement Mm. of course Menzies uh, absolutely key figure in the sort of US UK Mm. western alliance and uh, and of course in stark juxtaposition to the Soviet Union and its satellite states and members and you know global communism so there's you know that huge Tension, the Cold War tensions mm. that are coming out from these two, two figures. Nehru trying to be bang in the middle. I'm not taking sides here. Menzies very much taking a side against communism. But the, tell me the discovery of India, this book that, that Nehru had written. So he, he starts his sort of political career in 1920 or so, mm. early, early twenties. And, between between then and and becoming leader of India, spends some extraordinary period of time in jail. Mm. The British um, <laughs> don't take kindly to his protestations, no. and he's he's jailed various various times. So he spends a lot of time. Like Menzies, loves books, loves reading. Mm, mm. I think he gets something like twenty books a month to read or something. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and he writes the Discovery of mm. India, I think in nineteen forty four. Mm. Um, so it's in jail. Yeah. Um, so there's also a context of the times when he wrote it, his location that that I think gives the book even deeper meaning.
1: It does. It has a real charge. And the other thing that's worth noting, I think, is that Nehru is actually a lyrical writer. Right. So. Where you have people like Leo Amory, who is the British colonial secretary, who's also known, well known to Menzies and sends him multiple volumes that he himself has written about the, the empire and what's going to happen to the empire and why India matters to the British empire and so on. They're in the masculine language of, you know, uh, the white elite imperialists. And Nehru's book is quite different. It's got a lyrical turn. It's got a poetic turn in places. And he really can, you know, construct an interesting sentence. Mm. And so he has that lovely line, which I've quoted about, you know, where he, they, all, all the National Congress members are carted off to jail. And as they arrive to the fort where they're going to be, you know, imprisoned, the moon, a crescent moon, appears in the sky. <laughs> and like he thinks to put that in his account, which is interesting. Yeah, it's it's yeah. very interesting. And the way he writes about India, he writes about its people and its landscapes. That's very much part of this sprawling book. Right. Um, and so it's very different to the masculinist turn of mm. the British imperial books of the time, you know, Jenks and, and Amory and, and the other authors who were represented in the collection at that point.
0: Yeah, that that's really interesting and and especially to reflect on the fact that Nero himself was educated almost in, or entirely in England. So yeah. Harrow, he... Um, schooled at Harrow and then, and then went on to Cambridge to mm-hmm. study at university. So his, his education and I guess the, the foundations of his, of his, of his writing and reading would have been very much a British, mm. you know, British style. But this lyricism and poeticness mm. is that, is that, that's his sort of cultural, roots in in india is that is that what you think it's um, displaying
1: i think i think are uh, you right you're totally right he loved england he really really did and um very interestingly leo amory was at harrow and then they were both oxbridge types yes. so yeah. leo amory was five years before him ah. so Nehru is between amory and Menzies in age, but they're not that far apart in age, really. Um, but you know, they've, they've, yeah, as you say, they've had, you know, um, Amory and Nehru have had very similar educations. Um, and it was only later that Nehru really, you know, the way his family, which was, was treated by the British was poor too. They, members of his family were imprisoned as well. And, um, uh, you know, he had a very tough time. And he felt very bitter about why had, why had the leaders of the National Congress been jailed when actually, you know, Nehru himself supported the British stance in the war. But he wanted India to be able to have a say Mm. in how that war was fought. He didn't want the British just to. Tell them what to do and to conduct this war in, in India. That's really why he was in, 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 in prison at that time. So I think going back to your question though, I think the uh, thing about why there's that lyrical turn in, in, um, uh, my discovery of India, the discovery of India, it's actually, that's what the book is about. It's a young man's journey. And he actually, it's a journey of discovery by a young man who is actually a, a barrister at law who is a a member of the Inner Temple, Mm. you know, and and actually then in his own country has to confront the fact that he's going to have to take on this political role and sets off as an organiser, walking around all over the place, meeting people, getting a sense of his own country, starting to organ, you know, helping to organise. And so it is literally a young man's journey of discovery. And so... When we wonder how it was that in, you know, the early 40s he was able to write this book so quickly, I think because, you know, he'd actually been thinking about this stuff for a very long time. He had very strong feelings about it.
0: So when he gave the book in 1950 to Menzies, and as you say, there was a bit of a tradition of, of these, these great men, these, and they were men, let's be honest, um, yeah. giving, giving each other their memoirs. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, th- there's probably a, an interesting paper on, on that and what it means. Mm. <laughs> but it was quite a s- subversive book when you mm. consider mm. Menzies' own political beliefs. Mm. And, uh, there's a, there's quite a lot of, um, sort of socialist, uh, mm. ideas mm. in, in Nehru's book and, and his, his policies. So, you know, he's giving Menzies a book that, he knows. I presume he's had a briefing on what Menzies stands for, and <laughs> yeah, Menzies, yeah. Menzies mm-hmm. wasn't a, a big fan of um, <clears> of socialism. Uh, but um, you know, he's 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 giving Menzies a book that that he knows is in de- direct challenge to to the principles that Menzies is espousing and and is is governing his country by. So, you know, what can you say about about that type of action?
1: I I agree. I think I can't remember if I used the word subversive, but yeah, that was definitely um, how I see it. I see it. I, I think, it, you know, Nehru was a super clever guy. You know, this had been a very, very, it's just because it all turned out fine and he got out of jail and became, you know, um, you know prime minister for such a long time and, and such an influential world leader. We have to remember, you know, he and his family had a hellish time mm. for 20 years because of the British. So I think he just could I, – I do think it was subversive and I think it was in a way it was also sly. It was slyly humorous thing to do. So while I don't personally think that the I, – I don't think the inscription is insincere but I think it's written more in hope than in, you know, it's written in hope rather than belief that they are going to necessarily be on the same page.
0: And and the book remains, I appreciate it's not read beyond the first five pages (laughs) unless (laughs) Menzi's got his hand on another copy. Which is actually quite possible, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And And I,
1: I, sorry to interrupt, but it's not actually, there wasn't another copy in the library that I could find. I thought maybe he would have another copy of it but actually it was a hard book to get for a long time because it was published in the US Mm. Um, so I don't actually think he's read another copy of it necessarily interesting yeah. but he's mm.
0: kept it in the collection he did uh and and presumably because it was given to him by by Nehru, and irrespective of their differences he would have recognized him as an in, a significant international statesman mm. and figure and uh and you know he's kept it till his dying day yeah it ends up in the collection right. so there's this you know i think it shows menzie's appreciated the significance of Nehru and mm. they and they met many times they yeah. met about 12 or, or 15 times yeah, yeah, obviously they, at Commonwealth meetings at the United Nations but but on this particular occasion it was of course Menzies visiting India yeah. and in the collection there is actually a um, um, photographs of of them of the meeting um, which is which is quite interesting and you know you you look you know photo. There's a thousand words, doesn't it? So you mm. look at their facial expressions and are there grimaces or, I mean, mm. yeah, look, it could be, Could I'm sure you can interpret it any which way you want, but um, but look, they, they seem to be um, pleasant in their expressions largely in the photographs.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting that when you look at a lot of photographs, um, there will be, you know, the, the one that I used um, in that chapter was one that um, showed Nehru and other members of the Indian government or administration, and Menzies, his wife, and Heather, his daughter, who were also on the visit, and Mrs Menzies is standing next to Nehru. Now, that's unusual, you know. Um, And similarly, you know, in Commonwealth photos, often um, the Queen will be in the middle Mm. and Nehru will be on one side, and then there'll be other leaders, you know, including Menzies on the other side. So I, I, I don't think it's worth over making anything particularly of. But I think it is, it is interesting. I think to look at those photos. I think there's also a very interesting photo in that collection of Menzies and his wife and daughter at Gandhi's grave. Yes. Indeed. At the tomb, sorry, not yeah. the grave. Yeah. It's the and there's a, um, a flame, I think, from memory, um, on, it's a, so all that's there is a symbolic flame, um, that you can see, and there, Menzies is looking fiercely, he looks fierce in that photo, he's looking away, now, um, a, he's sort of looking away and fiercely, but then the more I study that, that photo, the more I realized actually he's got this burning light. You know, <laughs> it's, it's actually the light. It's probably one of those things where the light, he doesn't have his sunglasses on. And I think the light's just pouring into his face. <laughs> um, so, you know, once again, you have to be really careful about yeah, making, drawing conclusions, drawing conclusions from, yes, about um, this sort of evidence. But I, I must say that Indian collection of photos is. A beautiful collection it to is look a at. It's collection. so well taken. Yeah.
0: And it's a very
1: interesting historical yeah. document. And, and
0: those, and those photograph albums in the, in the Menzies collection, there's, there's some of, um, Menzies' visit to Japan. Yeah. Signing the, the commerce agreement in Japan. Um, there's, um, uh, of course, the Queen's visit, the royal visit in '54. Mm. There's a, a lovely album of that. There's visits to to Germany, well, West Germany, to to Malta, to Indonesia. I mean, there's mm. uh, Greece. There's yeah. beautiful image of Menzies at the Parthenon. Parthenon yeah. So you yeah. know, the, it's uh, it's amazing to see. And he kept these in his personal collection, mm. which is um, which is wonderful. Um, mm. I wanted to finish our discussion, Sybil, by uh, asking you about how our views change or or develop as we get older and, and and of course in relation to Menzies so there are there are the early books so the the, the book by Edward Jenks um, mm. that you know Menzies re, um, has received as a, as a young as a young man and then and then of course you get the the books later like um, that he received later like the the NERU book do you think these books um, that you get at an early age inform us of his foundational views that, that, that then, you know, develop over time. But, you know, mm. really this was where we can see Menzies forming his li- small L liberal ideals in, in this reading at an early stage, his, his passion for empire and, and British ideals. Is mm. that, is that where we, where we can pick that up or, or did it, does our, does our thinking evolve? throughout our lives and changes as mm. we sort of read different things?
1: I think this is a really interesting question about Menzies' collection because because the family didn't have huge amounts of money. Mm. The first books in the collection are what came to Menzies and what survived. Yeah. So, for example, um, there are books there that he got for school prizes very yes. early on. Yes. And you can see they had been poured over. Yeah. And there's food stains on, there's coffee stains on, or tea stains or whatever on them, and probably the whole Menzi family read and enjoyed those books, mm. and they're the ones that have survived that are in his collection, mm. and so they're there because that was all there was. Yes, and we books
0: would have been hugely expensive back then, you know, compared to well, I to think what
1: they are now for families on a on a budget. You know they were really, you know they they had a tough time, mm. and so I think you know books were to be really valued, and they were fairly rare when you lived somewhere like Jeparit, which at yes. that point was at the end of the line. Yeah. You know they weren't that easy to come by, although there was a, a news agent or something that sold books in Jeparit. We don't know very much about the books they sold. Uh, well, I don't, I haven't been able to discover much about that, but um, anyway. To go back to your question, which is really interesting, is I think, um, also I think Menzies collection has a lot of evidence of backfilling. Mm. So I, I think when you look at things like the volumes of Macaulay, they've been bought later when he's visited Britain and he's in middle age by that point. Yeah. And well, his
0: first visit to Britain wasn't until the mid 1930s. Yeah, that's right. So this sort 35. of idea that he's, yeah. he's, you know, British to his bootstraps. He, you know, he, I, you know, unlike a lot of his contemporaries in that milieu, mm. hasn't been to no. Britain until he's in, you know, he's 40, 41 by that mm. stage. So, yeah. you know, he's developed very much as an adult by that stage without having ever been to the mother country.
1: Yeah, and that's one of the points I think Cameron yeah. Hazelhurst makes really nicely about how, you know, his brother's, his two older brothers had gone to war. They had visited London before him. They had seen the realities of war. Menzies had remained, you know, of a romantic state of mind about Britain. Mm. Um, and in some ways, he had an arrested mm. view of empire, I think we can say. Mm. Um, A.W. Martin even says, you know, Menzies on his first visit to Britain. You know, it was very romantic in his thinking about Britain, even naive. Mm. You know, it's really interesting. Um, so at, when he went on those, whenever he went to Britain after that, he would collect books, you know, and he – so when, what I thought I found as I looked at all the. so I found about there's at least 80 books in the collection that are directly about – the empire, yes, uh, and seriously about the empire, and then there's a whole lot of other books around it, you know, say souvenirs about you know uh, Queen Elizabeth's coronation or whatever. Um, but of there's probably more than that. That's all I was able to sort of assess in that time I was looking at the library collection. But as I became more and more aware that a lot of this book, this book collection is actually books that Menzies bought later, uh, because these books had a talismanic value to him.
0: Yes, yeah. the
1: Macaulay, you know, even Virginia Woolf read Macaulay and loved Macaulay. Yeah. You know, um, it, it's it's one of those histories that um, was very very English, um, and that had you know was very widely read in Australia during the nineteenth century. And Menzies would have been really aware of it, and so obviously he wanted to have that in his collection. Mm. It's really hard when you look at that one in particular to work out whether he read it, um, because it had been and he, previously. And he might have read owned, it. He, he might have
0: read it, borrowing it from a mechanics institute or something. You know, growing, yeah. growing up, he never owned the book at the yeah. time, but but read it and mm. returned it, and and then yes. when he had the capacity, that's right. The, I mean, to I buy think, it himself.
1: Yeah, I think I think this is the case. I think a lot of the books that he, I think he probably used um, any books that came uh, were available through law libraries parliamentary libraries he just was he you know he bought books but you know once again he, he 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 really loved books and so he would have been sourcing them from all over the place and so I think the collection it's very hard to say that you know um Books from his childhood or from his early teen, it's very hard to actually say he's kept those because they were so meaningful, because mm. actually he's kept them because they were, they might have been super meaningful, but they were the only books coming yeah. his way. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, yeah. yeah. No, it's worth reflecting on that um, context from which he came in Japan. Mm. Very, very modest circumstances. And, you know, um, a lot like his, his, political nemesis in the, um, in the fifties, Doc Evatt. Mm. No, great, great reader. Uh, really defined by being brilliant at books and educa- and educational opportunities but, but the circumstances from which both of them came were very, very modest mm. uh, and um, they really had to make, make great use of mechanics institutes and, and the like around them and public libraries um, in mm. order to be able to, to progress. Well, Sybil, thank you so much for this discussion. It's been an absolute delight to finally meet you in person <laughs> but, um, but have to have you on the afternoon light podcast so thank you. Thank you. you. The Afternoon Life podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.